And certainly one of the ways I feel that I've been most deeply challenged, perhaps even more than the physical difficulty and pain, is on the questions of faith and doubt and self-acceptance. I feel that these questions are really ever-presently alive in my life. And I ask that this afternoon we explore these very important and fundamental questions together. I feel really privileged to be here doing this this afternoon because I have no doubt that I have much to learn from your own wrangling and wrestling with these questions. I'd like to ask that in beginning we sit just perhaps for a minute quietly together, that we have an opportunity to reflect on these questions personally in our lives. Following that I'll speak hopefully for no longer than 40-45 minutes and what time remains after that I hope there'll be a lively and probing discussion. I also know that you're at the tail end of a really long, massive retreat, and if anybody feels a need to either fall asleep or, or, <laughs> or leave at any point, really know that's absolutely fine with me. Considering the question of faith and doubt, faith in the practice, faith perhaps that freedom is possible, faith in each moment. Heeding the call to a life of wakefulness and honesty and a love free of attachment is, I feel, the most courageous and noble challenge facing any human being. And this challenge must call into question every assumption that we have about ourselves, every idea about who or what it is that we are, and every preconceived notion that there might be about the world. A real stepping into the unexplored and the unknown. A movement towards the great mystery and a journey where we are called to die to all attachments, to all delusions, and to all sense of security. 
This is a call to warriorship. And for me personally, I feel a great challenge to our spirits. And it's immensely hard to do. This path of freedom, this path of purification, is not always easy. As we open to the depths of who we are and the truth and the true nature of the world in which we live, and as the truth of the world reveals itself to us, there come times, certainly my experience, of really shattering heartbreak, of profound sadness and grief, and enormous pain, both physical and mental. And all this, of course, along with those times of joy and times of happiness and calm. What a challenge overall this is to our spirit, to our sense of commitment. And sometimes we run, and sometimes we don't. And certainly for me, if I do, it really doesn't seem to be all that far. And the question that is important, really, is where does the resource come to stick with it and just to begin again? In the end, it's this force of faith and trust and confidence that give us the willingness and ability and the sheer guts to continue. These three factors of faith and trust and self-acceptance are really so interconnected and interrelated. It's not really possible to explore one without embracing the others to some degree. And I feel that this issue of faith and doubt and self-acceptance is often a very difficult one for us in the West. So I'd like to begin by exploring carefully what is meant by them. Faith is the drive towards that which is beyond description, the truth, the mystery. And the spiritual life begins with some degree of faith. It is not of the mind, it is not of words, it's really not of, the, it's not of belief or it's not of the intellect. Rather it is intuitive. beyond words, beyond the mind. And it is critical, for without faith we'd not be here, we'd not meditate, we'd not make the great effort that we do. The texts say that faith is the doorway through which all positive qualities manifest. Consider that for a moment, the doorway through which all positive qualities manifest. And for Westerners, often, this word is a difficult one. It's misunderstood so often. And in the beginning, I'd like to carefully consider exactly what is meant by faith in this tradition. There are three kinds of faith. The first is what is known as blind faith. Belief in something outside of ourselves. And if it's a leader, 
and that leader turns out to be good and trustworthy, then be fortunate, we're lucky, we're blessed. But if that leader turns out to be misleading or hurtful, the consequences can be devastating. An example of the extreme of this blind faith would be the religious fanaticism that prevails in our world and all the dangers that accompany it. And the tone of this blind faith is one of rigidity, closeness and defensiveness, most often avoiding possibilities and at the same time threatened by them too. And the important thing about blind faith is that it is not verified or referenced to our experience in any way. It is really outside of that. Blind faith. The next kind of faith is known as bright faith. The texts say that bright faith brightens and gladdens the heart and mind. And for many it is this bright faith that is the first arising of faith on the spiritual path. For me in South Africa 11 years ago when I met Joseph Goldstein in Zululand, the real feeling of the brightness of the faith at that time, and it took me so far. Often on hearing the Dharma for the first time there is an arising of this bright faith. Perhaps in meeting somebody who is inspiring, seeing an image or perhaps a beautiful sunset. There is an element of devotion too in this bright faith. And it's important. It inspires confidence and it gives us energy. It really gets us going at the beginning so that we might set forth and heed our own particular call to destiny. And yet, what is important about this bright faith is that it too occurs without knowledge or wisdom. We can still be fooled. There is really no wisdom yet to question the object of our reverence. So there's this blind faith and there's the bright faith. The third kind of faith is known as verified faith. And the arising of verified faith, for me certainly, has been one of the greatest happinesses of the unfolding of the practice. As we see the truths of the Dharma for ourselves, one has in effect verified the Dharma that one has been hearing. Faith becomes true, checked out, and verified to some degree. And as the mindfulness gets stronger and the insight deeper, we see more and our verified faith grows. And the importance of suffering is really great too when considering this verified faith. For it is the suffering that gives us the juice to examine and to continue for if there is no suffering, we'd really not be here making the effort that we do. And in this way, 
suffering is a conditioning factor for faith. It really awakens us to faith. The Buddha said that suffering ripens as confusion or suffering ripens as search. And it is out of our contact with suffering, out of our despair, that with faith the energy for liberation comes. The Buddha also said, you too come see. You too come see. And each insight, again and again, deepens our faith until it becomes unshakable. We become impervious to the opinions of others. We become so sure. We know a deep trust and faith in the spirit of our inquiry and our seeing and the wisdom of our inquiry and our seeing gives depth and power to our faith. And ultimately in the meditation practice we are called to a faith in each moment relinquishing the past and the future, surrendering even the most minuscule resistance, if possible, feeling the pain of how much we want things to be reliable, how much we want our world to be solid. We yearn to feel the ground beneath our feet more firmly than it is. And it takes huge faith to let go of this deep, existential yearning and living more with what Alan Watts called the wisdom of insecurity. This is a quote from Judge No, who spoke so much about faith in his book Do You See What I See? He says radical acceptance is radical acknowledgement of the presence of truth in this very moment. The only thing to do is to do nothing but accept truth in all ways, as all things, at all times, in all forms, in all ways. To let go, to accept, it is necessary only to give up your concerns and your fears. It's not a matter of whether or not faith is present in your life, it is. It's only a question of whether you place your faith in truth and reality or in your considerations, your abstractions and thoughts about it. Do not doubt whether or not you are practicing faith. Consider only where it is placed. Radical acceptance is the practice of faith. It's really no coincidence that I'm giving this talk now. Over the years, increasingly, in the last years, I've been humbled and I guess strengthened by my own grappling and wrangling with faith. I'd like to speak personally, if I may, for a moment. When I was diagnosed two years ago, that time felt very dire. I felt so hopeless 
it seemed like the worst case scenario was just crashing around me relentlessly all of the time. I've lost about 30 friends to this virus now. And it seemed like what happened to each one of them was what I was carrying most closely in my heart. And it was a time really of casting out for meaning in all of this, for some reason to continue, some faith. And at first I struck this bargain, like I struck this bargain with the virus. I said that if I got better, then I would have faith. If I had faith, (laughs) then I'd get better. And then I just was tripping and stumbling over this agreement all the time, again and again. And it really seems that now I understand it to be a little different. There are no conditions with faith. The faith really is just a momentary thing. There's so much that's unknown and there's nothing that is guaranteed. There's nothing solid really, it's just moments, one after the other. And I feel that for me this seems to be the surrendering to faith. And in terms of all this time that I used to spend going around to see healers and going to doctors and for blood tests, it seemed that at some point I could kill myself with the exhaustion of all the people that I was seeing. And I see now that the question of faith there too is important. Just trusting that what I am doing is enough in this moment. For the truth really is that living with this virus is unworkable. If I bring into this moment every ghastly projection and every fear and every possibility that the future might hold. And faith seems to be really for me just about this moment now. This breath, this heartbeat, this landscape. And trusting that the next landscape really will take care of itself. How does this faith manifest in the meditation practice? It seems that there is a very important shift that happens at some point. It's very simple and it's very sweet. There comes to be a very deep gratitude for presence in each moment. Before there was perhaps a heaviness and a judgment and a focusing on the negativities and perhaps a frustration with the times when we're not present. And instead certainly my own experience, I come to know these days a real wonder and an awe and a gratitude for just being present again, now. And it feels like an important shift and yet a very subtle one too. And it seems also to be the birth of a time of deeper faith and really happiness too in the meditation practice. And with it comes a deeper commitment to the meditation, a deeper commitment to being awake. And even when there is confusion 
and when there is distraction, it is the memory of the times of pure presence that really give the faith and the strength to continue. It's as if those times give us all that we need to continue when it's difficult and when it's overwhelming. And we don't have to look too carefully to see that we live in a world in a deep crisis of faith. There is such widespread lack of faith around us. Why is a sure faith so difficult to develop and so hard to find? Trusting for many is so hard to do. It seems like the lack of self-acceptance is often an integral part of the reason for this. And the roots of non-self-acceptance almost always go way back to our childhood. Perhaps we had parents with their own problems and difficulties, making them unable to be there for us and difficult to love us in ways that are healthy. The child is perhaps not considered or validated, perhaps even abused. The child is not accepted. The love that there is is often conditional and conditioned upon expectations of others. And all of this makes a healthy trust and faith difficult and unlikely to easily arise later on in life. Also, we are bombarded so much by the media, by television, by the expectations that surround us, and by all of this violence, all damaging our ability to trust and to listen and to sense. A real numbing seems to happen, inculcating in us often an inability to relax. We pay an enormous price for all of this. We live in a world of such anxiety and such cruelty. Our environment is in catastrophic shape, as you know. I feel all of this is connected with this question of faith. Lack of faith in our own potential, a lack of faith in one another, a lack of faith in nature, and a lack of faith in a wider sense in the orderliness and interconnectedness of the universe. For the healthy child really has an intuitive and instinctive trust of the rhythms of life and of nature. And often we as adults have to really struggle to find this trust again. And so for many, and certainly I speak personally here, life is so often lived as a victim of its circumstances. Fighting and struggling the feeling of really being blown around by the winds that rage. 
Really, the way of faith is different. A life of faith asks this really simple question of itself. What can I learn from this situation? Again and again, in every situation of challenge, the same question, what can I learn from this situation? We know that whatever is happening is exactly where we need to be, no matter how difficult. Moving really from a life as punishment to a life as opportunity. It's a radical shift. Faith gives meaning and profound challenge then, I mean profound possibility then, to the challenges that come. With faith we move forward then. This is its nature. They say that faith moves mountains. I love that. There is a deep faith then and trust in this moment. No matter how awful, no matter how difficult, no matter how challenging, we know that this is exactly where we need to be. And this is precisely what we are given to learn from. For many, grappling with faith is really central to the spiritual path. And sometimes the faith is there and we feel inspired and have dreams of what we're going to do and where we're going to be, and sometimes it's not. And faith then too is of course conditioned and it's impermanent. And here too then we also faced with the challenge of riding out the changes having a long enduring mind that will allow the faith to come and the faith to go. And when considering the question of the lack of faith, really the bottom line is the question of fear. Fear is the opposite of faith. If we're engulfed by fear, there can be no faith. We must know the essence and the truth and all the faces of fear. Fear of pain, death, of loneliness, fear of insecurity, fear of confusion and then fear of fear itself. Fear of not being loved, not being accepted and not being validated. We must recognize the fear label it, feel it, even cellularly if necessary, again and again and again, becoming naked in its presence, really acknowledging any resistance that there might be, and backing off if necessary. For the truth is that it is faith and trust that take us to the edges to the precipice, and this is also the exact place where faith and trust thrive too. Taking risks, going right to the edge, takes a lot of guts, 
But what is also true is that it is faith that lets go and it's the fear that holds on and tries to keep things unmoving. It's the fear that keeps us uncentered and it's the fear that creates that emptiness and that poverty of heart. Can we be a friend of the fear instead of cringing from it? This is such a deep challenge for me personally. This is Peter, uh, no, this is Roki. He says, it's a letter that he wrote to a fellow poet. He says, we have no reason to harbor any mistrust against our world, for it is not against us. If it has terrors, they are our terrors. If it has abysses, these abysses belong to us. If there are dangers, we must try to love them. And only if we could arrange our lives in accordance with the principle that tells us that we must always trust in the difficult, then what now appears to us to be alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races? The myths about dragons that at the last moment are transformed into princesses. Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are only princesses waiting for us to act. Just once, with beauty and with courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is in its deepest essence something helpless that wants our love. So you must not be frightened if a sadness rises before you larger than any you've ever seen. If an anxiety like light and cloud shadows moves over your hands and everything that you do, you must realize that something has happened to you. Life has not forgotten you, that it holds you in its hands and will not let you fall. Why do you want to shut out of your life any uneasiness, any misery or any depression? For after all, you do not know what work these conditions are doing inside of you. And yes, it does seem true that we need to know the darkness. For if we show someone their shadow, we show them their light at the same time. We can never be a victim of what is illuminated. And on the other side of faith is doubt. Doubt can be the big darkness. And here too, it seems that we're called to know the many faces of doubt also. This is Merton, Thomas Merton. He says, the marginal person, the monk, the displaced person, the prisoner, all these people live in the presence of death which calls into question the meaning of life. She or he struggles with the fact of death in himself or herself, trying to seek something deeper than death, because there is something deeper than death in the office of the monk or the marginal person or the meditative person or the poet. To go beyond death, even in this life, to go beyond the dichotomy of life and death, 
and to be therefore the witness to life. This requires, of course, faith. But as soon as we say faith, we run into another problem. Faith means doubt. Faith is not the suppression of doubt. It is the overcoming of doubt. And you overcome doubt by going through it. Going through the doubt. Struggling to the depths of what Merton calls the big doubt. These are times in the meditation that are so challenging. We can be so overwhelmed with the difficulty and with the suffering. The feeling that we can't go on, that we've really reached our limit. It's what's been called the dark night of the soul. Feel like we're having experiences that really are quite beyond our capacity to open to them. And this moment is such an important moment in the practice. We need to be able, in this moment of difficulty, to give ourselves permission to back off, to shut down if necessary. This is an act of wisdom. Otherwise, the situation can become unworkable. The doubt arises so strongly, there can be a lack of confidence in ourselves, and we give up. But if we do pull back, if we do back off, we can always return later, rested, stronger, and renewed. And this shutting down and renewing strengthens our faith rather than feeds our doubt. So what is doubt? Let's get clinical here. Michelle uses a wonderful image, an analogy for doubt. She says doubt is like a recipe for a cake. She says you take a little fear, a little discontent, some, sli- some sleepiness, some boredom, lack of mindfulness, And together, all of these lead to a real paralysis, a real exhaustion, perhaps a lack of commitment, hesitancy, all the faces of doubt. And in the doubt, in the grip of doubt, we so often turn against ourselves. I'd like to, if I may speak personally again over here, I'd like to share an experience that has happened over the last two times that I've been sitting here. A number of different factors have made these last retreats that I've done really challenging. There was a lot of what I subtly, and perhaps not so subtly, interpreted as a difficulty with the practice. It's also physical pain and fear confusion and exhaustion. This is is my recipe. (laughs) Also, profusion of thoughts relating to insecurity. Insecurity in my ability to deal with the pain and what at times feels like the relentlessness of it. Insecurity in my ability to find balance 
with the vastness of the suffering and insecurity also in my ability to share the Dharma in the storm of all that I sometimes feel that I've been given to live with. And what has also been difficult and complicating has been that my health has felt so unreliable and so variable. There's also been a strong chemical reaction to moving off a year and a half of drug therapy. I often have difficulty sleeping too. And these times have created a real deep despair and a hopelessness that on retreat I feel so strongly, a real sort of hell realm. And it was really rough and challenging. And the last retreat was in some ways the hardest one I've ever sat. And in the middle of it all, there were some questions that arose. I was listening to a tape by Vimalo, and out of this tape these questions just came forward, really like thunderbolts of challenge in the middle of the storm. They were like lightning bolts cutting through the storm that felt like it was raging around me. And the question was, do I truly believe that what is happening now is perfectly okay? Do I truly believe that? As it is, am I a victim of what is going on in any way? And it was like there was this immediate disintegration of this gridlock of like tightness. It was just, felt like it uh, annexed my spirit and my body. And it felt like a light came on and the awareness moved to places that it had not been able to before, energetic and emotional places. And I saw the whole recipe as clear as daylight. Thoughts born of fear and giving birth to more fear. The resistance to fear, the aversion to thoughts, the denial and the resistance to the pain and to the sadness, and the identification then with the thoughts and the identification with the whole process. And just in this, in this time, just became so clear. It was not a pleasant recipe. <laughs> not appealing at all. But the aftermath of the seeing was really incredible. Really seeing somewhat the faces of doubt. The first thing that happened, there was such joy and such buoyancy there. Great happiness in the middle of all of this. It was a huge resurgence of faith, a real feeling of like brightness and renewal relating to the practice. A deep strength of commitment and purpose and conviction. Real feeling of being renewed in my refuge in the Dharma and in the Buddha and in the Sangha wrangling and grappling with faith and doubt. And I've purposely shared this with you in some detail that you might perhaps reflect also and know the many faces of doubt as they work perhaps in your own lives. Let's look analytically at doubt, if we may, for a moment, please. 
What is sure in my own experience is that in doubt I turn against myself. There are a lot of thoughts, they're usually excessive and discursive. And let's look at some of these thoughts when the doubt is there. Perhaps they're familiar to you. I can't do this. I'll never get it. I'm failing at the practice. I'm not working hard enough. I hate myself. I'm working too hard. Everyone else can do it, but I can't. And really what is happening here is that the anger and frustration is really being turned inwardly against ourselves. And then we identify with that process. And the other side of the same face are the the statements, the meditation practice doesn't work. There's too much noise. There's too little noise. The teachings are not right. The teachers are not right. And here again, there's boredom and anger and frustration turned outwards. And identification happens with that too. And in both cases, we're not owning the truth of what is happening. We're not seeing that it is just the anger and the boredom and the other factors that are there. And the further danger when when doubt is really strong is that there comes to be a shifting of responsibility for freedom outside of ourselves. And the danger of that investment is really enormous. We cling to opinions and to beliefs and even perhaps to the Dharma rather than having a faith verified by our seeing and born of our experience and our understanding. If we believe and if we identify with the voices of doubt, we can use this practice that is so potentially freeing as a weapon against ourselves. We really kill the heart of the practice. The mind convinces itself, if you will, that freedom is impossible. What a tragedy! And yet I know certainly in my own case that this has been true. My experience also is that our relationship to thoughts is really pivotal in dealing with doubt. For as the practice deepens, our thoughts at last become less and less important. Not that they don't occur, because I believe they always will, but really, it's just that we see their value. We see the limitation, and perhaps we see to some degree that they really are empty. No one's thinking. And we focus more on the ground from which the thoughts come. We trust the stillness, really, rather than the chatter moving, if you will, to the heart from the mind. For what is true is that if we identify with the voice of doubt and with the thoughts of doubt, this identification obscures the truth and it paralyzes our efforts and perhaps even our spirits. And the question in all of this conflict then 
and all of this violence is where is the love? Where is the place of God in the meditation practice? Where is the joy? This is Peter Matheson. He says, Late in Seshin, after six long days of pain, hurling myself to no avail against iron cliffs, I began to wonder why I'd come, why I'd persisted year after year with this frustrating practice, a spider hanging from the zendo ceiling, spinning its moo out of its belly, was my echo. I gave up struggling and settled calmly into moment-by-moment quiet, breath after breath. Soon I was light and taut, at one with pain as I was with breathing, with incense, far crows, and the autumn wind. Small silver breath further and further apart, scoured the last tatters of thought and emotion from the inside of my skull. Now a silent bell. Very suddenly on an inhaled breath, this earthbound body-mind in great hush began to swell and fragment and dissolve in light, expanding outward into a fresh universe and the very process of creation. At the bell ending this period, this perspective ended. Yet those clear moments had been an experience that everything was here, now, contained in me. I mourned that bell that came so swiftly and tried to cheer myself during the walking meditation. Who me? I murmured right out loud and began to laugh. The laughter quickly turned to weeping. And with the tears came a sudden rush of love for everyone and everything without distinction. This feeling was instantly followed by a rush of doubt. Had I really perceived something? All this damn soggy weeping. Had my mind gone soft? The doubt came sweeping back again. Perhaps I was wanting such experiences too badly. Can we welcome this doubt as fully as any other aspect of our experience? Just the next landscape, just the next friend, the next cloud, the next bubble. Really, just like the thoughts, the sounds, the sensation, all empty phenomena rolling on, as Joseph says. For the deepening of faith, really, there does need to be, though, some healing of the lack of self-acceptance. Not to recondition the mind again, but rather to balance out the old ways. To counterbalance the tendency, if we will, the tendency to self-criticism, to guilt, to unworthiness, and to self-condemnation so that we can see more clearly, perhaps in a new way. The meditation practice that we do here is about being more accepting and allowing of all that arises. And this must include 
all the faces of whatever non-self-acceptance there might be. That really we might feel the pain and the suffering of this inner violence and this inner conflict. That our heart perhaps may one day whisper, no more, and let go. This, I feel, is a moment of purest faith. Jajeno says, try everything and then faith. And it would seem, really in closing, that the degree to which there is a consolidation of inner faith is the degree to which we can know an outer faith also. A faith in humankind and a faith also in our world. This faith is the gift that we give to one another and that we might possibly bring to the world. For the illumination and the brightness of our faith can be a permission for others to touch and know their own capacity and their reservoir of faithfulness and trust and confidence. And in a world so lacking in trust, so much in a crisis of faith, our faith and our spirit is vital. I'll never forget the words of Nelson Mandela soon after he was released from 20 years of imprisonment in South Africa where I was born. Somebody said to him, how is it that you can now sit down with those who jailed you for 21 years? How can you now negotiate the freedom of your people with those who kept you in prison? And he said, ultimately, he said, we are a forgiving people. I feel like this is such a statement of faith in humanity. Real personal inspiration for me. I'd like to close with a few excerpts from one of Christopher Titmuss's interviews. Dr. Sheila Cassidy was um, arrested and tortured in Chile for treating a man hunted by the secret police there. And she's now the medical director of St. Luke's Hospice in Plymouth. She says, Some years ago I entered a convent wanting to get closer to God, but I failed. It didn't work for me. I was very unhappy and I left. Here in an ordinary suburban city, I see such goodness from ordinary people. The father of the young woman who died came to the hospice today to pick up his daughter's remaining possessions and the death certificate. He came in his best suit. He was so grateful. I told him that he had been wonderful and so supportive. And he said, well, I sat there with my daughter. Sometimes she would be horrible to me, but I knew she didn't mean it. So I just took it. There is such a selflessness in that. Selflessness is one of the holiest things. What reinforces my faith is the selflessness that can be elicited out of very ordinary people. I find that to be a very holy thing. I see so many people who are totally giving. One of the nice things about being here 
is that you meet people stripped of pretense and in the raw. Some of them are very selfish, but you also see so many people who are so lovely. I find that miraculous. I think the world is bloody marvelous and people are lovely. And it's not that I don't know that people are wounded and fragile, but I believe they are fundamentally good. I worship the unseen face of God, she says. What makes me want to lie on my face in the dark is talk of the unseen transcendent God. I've been looking a lot lately at the risen Christ and that has become meaningful for me. But what gets me in my religious guts is the sense of the unseen God. That is the God before whom I prostrate. I'm turned on by the mystics. My experience of God gives me a joy beyond all knowing. The central thing is to do, really though, with the love of God. I suppose that one can experience God in very beautiful surroundings, such as when listening to beautiful music or watching a sunset. But you can also experience his presence in very ordinary surroundings. I went to London last week to give a lecture and I sat in an empty tube train going from A to B. I had a tremendous sense of the presence of God, of loving him and being loved. I felt quite overwhelmed, though at the same time quite aware of where I was. I value that kind of experience more than those which come in a more romantic setting. If I experience God when I am desperate with insomnia, or crying, or in the tube, or the car, it seems a more stripped-down sort of encounter than in the middle of a sunset or a beautiful liturgy. I think that's why I would pray by choice in the dark or in an empty room. Words like dazzling dark make me want to lie on the floor and pray. Sometimes I'm scared that I kid myself. I don't spend an hour praying every morning. I think if I was really spiritual, I would spend an hour every morning and every night praying. In practice, maybe I spend half an hour or 20 minutes. It doesn't feel like enough but I can't cope with any more at the moment. I can cope with more when I'm on holiday. Sometimes I worry about that, sometimes I don't. I don't pray with words, she says. I pray by sitting and opening up myself to God. It's just sitting there. I pray with the odd word. I haven't prayed with words for years and years. I've never been desperately into saying prayers. There is, though, a certain spiritual pride which comes through praying without words. So I think it is good for me to be able to pray with words also. But the only sort of words I seem to use are help, or more often, I love you. Thank you.
um, beyond the shadow of a doubt that the exact places where my back goes out and where the pain is are the exact places where I resist the fear. And I, I just saw the cause and effect absolutely clearly. It was like a bright light on it. And it made me realize, you know, that... And I think this goes way b- before the virus, you know. What do you mean you resist the fear in your intestines? Oh, well, when, when the fear arises, which I experience like this very deep sort of bubbling that happens like way down here, that's like the energy of fear. And it is like a contract around it in the gut. It just like, it just goes like this. Sometimes the whole pelvis will lock and in the back too. It's just like, it's almost like the energy rises and the back goes like that. I just saw it. It was like, no question. And I realized that probably it's because I've just been, um, these fears have been around a very long time and they've been held in in that way. And so I guess what the practice is doing is opening up the fears and putting some a, a choice into the resistance. You know, I, I have a choice there to either resist it or not at times if the mindfulness is good. And so, um, but it's very, very difficult. And I feel like what's happening now that's really difficult is that after this experience, I had three weeks of virtually no pain. And it was, I was so happy. I thought I would never feel that way again in my life you know, and it was wonderful, and of course I also then began to think it's going to be different now, you know, and then when it, when things started closing down again, it was heartbreaking, you know, and so now, now I feel I'm finding, you know, I'm going in and out of it, you know, it's really hard because my mind likes there not to be pain, you know, but now, um, like today, it's just the feeling of like this, and um, I try to just forget about all of that, you know? It's like it's gone, you know, this is it. And I feel like that's how the question of faith is alive for me all the time, you know? That's when you said, when you said, um, is what is ha- can I trust into what is happening? that this is just exactly the thing that is supposed to be happening now. When I am able to touch in with that, it just all falls apart and it's all okay. But it's, it's often really hard to do that. Mm. Bargaining also, you know. I sometimes think, you know, well, if I can just allow the fear to be, then there's still another part to that, that deal that doesn't even have to have words, you know, but it's just so much wants it just to go away, you know. And I'm seeing that also a lot, you know. Like, Places of feeling like, oh, I've got to get out, you know, some, some, what, 
feels like a deep resolution of working out an issue, what it, you know, and um, and then and then feeling so, uh, I mean, watching myself go into such aversion when it comes up again, like oh, I can't believe it, you know, all the doubt of mm, there must. You know, there must be something wrong with me that I'm not better yet. There must yeah. be something wrong that that final realization didn't hold. And um, it's been very um, uh, it's been actually a very softening and humbling experience to let go of those deep agendas that I found I had of what constitutes health and what constitutes sanity and normal development and everything else. Mm. And to really open up to, wow, this is what my life has been. And my life has been a lot dealing with fear. And I mean, I say it a lot to people here in interviews and in more personal check-ins. I really dealt with fear. I mean, I'm, I deal with my terror and I deal with my fear a tremendous amount all the time. And it's taken such a deep letting go to accept that almost daily I work around these levels of terror and fear. How do you work with resistance? So really, uh, really, um, what, really a lot what you're saying is that I feel like I don't have a lot of control around it. That when mindfulness is strong, sometimes it, it comes and it goes, and it doesn't really impact me a lot. And that when mindfulness isn't, I don't have control over the contraction mm. around it. And mm. I go into this, I feel like I'm in a twisted, contorted position inside of myself and my contraction. Mm. And that's when I do more of the activities, the backing off activities that you talk about. Like, that's when I swim and I sauna, that's, or have a hot bath here or light my altar candles, or, I mean, sometimes I'll even watch a movie, or something that's like really backing off, mm. and often that softens the contraction a little bit. Mm. Mm. And then, you know, sitting, sitting all the time, I'll help, I'll help with the thought, but not even necessarily, too. It's like, I don't have control of it, it just works with knowing um, um, how to soften it enough to be able to function as well as it is. What I've been working with, when I, when I go into a negative, fearful mind space is start doing meta. Doing meta. Um, for myself, that's as far as I can go. Um, and I've had my own little formula in that, uh, so my own little sayings you know, that I put together. And that gets me out of that, that fear space, out of that negative space that I find myself in. And that helps too. Hmm. One of the things that um, has been wonderful is coming here every four weeks you know, and sitting for a, for a week has meant that, you know, I feel like I don't have a choice, that my life is like, it feels like it's on the front burner, you know, 
There's no choice about that. Everything feels really intense, you know, if I'm sitting or if I'm not sitting. But coming every frequently and just grounding in that way feels like I'm seeing more, you know. And it's, I mean, it's the greatest gift, you know, because not being able to understand it to some degree, um, then I'm right into feeling a victim. So just coming and sitting every so often for, it's a one, in some ways I think maybe for me it's better than like a three-month course. Just every so often coming and seeing what's happening, you know. Feels like um, it's just making it workable. And I don't know how other people, you know, I go to a support group meeting in Brattleboro where there are anything from five to twelve other people who are living with the virus. And, you know, these people are all drinking, smoking, you know, um, uh, doing very self-destructive things, you know. And um, I feel like one of the unquestionable blessings, you know, is that the Dharma has given me a choice about that. You know, I feel like to the extent that I have a choice, I'm not adding to what's going on, you know. And one of the things that's really painful in this group, and when I was in Hawaii, I went to an HIV support group also, and just felt how these people are destroying themselves, you know. Like, it's almost like killing themselves with the diagnosis, you know. And for a lot of my friends, you know, <clears throat> you know, some of them died, you know, they went from being pretty much okay and they died, you know, in like seven, eight months, you know. I feel it's just like the weight of the burden of living with this virus is so enormous, both one's own terrors plus the weight of, of what comes at you, that I feel like, you know, the Dharma really gave me another way you know, just, you know, to a great degree, you know, and that certainly is one of the reasons why I feel such deep refuge in this, you know. I mean, I don't know how long I'm going to live, you know, but um, I do know that in the last months I've known times of being unquestionably happier and more fulfilled than I've ever been in my life. And so in some ways I feel like I can die now, you know? You know, it would have been awful to have just got the diagnosis and just, you know, die, you know?
be interesting to know from the of life and being in the body, you know, and the imperfection of it, how it's expressing itself and, you know, HIV or disability or just the struggles in our love affairs or so on and so forth. And, um, and um, one of the reasons I love being this, on this side of Yogi Land, which is in Stark Life Yogi Land and, and being here together, is how much I feel like that part is stressed here. You know, that the Dharma for us is very much each of us in our own ways in this context, taking up the challenges and, and using that, using the experiences we have here as the opening. And that's what I hear you saying. And it's really, I mean, I really love hearing you talk because it's um, not, it's just, a, a different perspective on, for example, some of the ways the Dharma is communicated, mm. which is in some more traditional, sometimes communicated more traditionally. And um, it feels very, it feels very, uh, it feels very inspiring and very supportive to me, you know, to, to hear how the openings happen for you and how that is the dawn for you, that process mm. of opening and how it's brought you to that sense of the possibility of freedom. And it's it's you know, it's that it's like turning the it's it's that first noble truth again, looking at the unsatisfactoriness in our lives, you know, and looking at the suffering in it. And seeing that it's in that deep understanding of that, you know, and then the deep opening to it is the freedom hmm. and the possibility. And um, so often we get, what you say, so often I feel like we get caught into the victim position of feeling like that the suffering that we're in and the deep um, unsatisfactoriness that we're in is just the opposite of our freedom. Hmm. You know, th hmm. and, that's, and that's our version, right? Hmm. So we get caught in this thing that the more unsatisfactory it is, the more we're convinced that this is not where our freedom right. happens from. Right. And actually, it's just the opposite, and that's what I hear you saying, mm. that in your deepest contraction, you know, came this lightning bolt of, am I really opening to this? Mm. You know, and that's where your freedom came at the same moment, and mm. it's just, it's just lovely to hear. Mm. One of the things that is also true is that I don't want to, you know, to give the impression that, um, that it was like, you know, along came the virus, and, you know, it was just like, I knew where I wanted to go. It's like I feel like I have been kicking and screaming, you know, m my way through these last two years on inner levels, you know. And I feel like it's just 
for me, the experience of this virus has been so... Um, I don't want to use too strong a word. The word that I was going to use was brutal, but, but it was like... It is just... It hits at so many levels. It hits, you know, you know on the level of... You know, like one of the things that I'm dealing with now is... Um, you know, I, I broke up with my lover and I met Bill before I was diagnosed and I left him in December and so now I'm thinking of myself again in terms of being a sexually active person you know, so I'm looking at my sexuality and I find that one of the ways that this virus is alive in me is with a real sense of shame you know, I'm feeling like I'm sort of um, like damaged or soiled, you know like shame and uh, and that's really painful because you know I've gone through all the years of coming out as a gay man of you know of living that with dignity and pride and overtly and you know no secrets anymore you know and that was a long way and now I feel like I'm back there you know and you know so it's like dealing with all these other things and also now dealing with if I am going to live without limitation and fullness, that includes, it feels true for me to be sexually alive. And what do I find there? It's like it's been at work there too in that way, you know? And it's just, it's just amazing, you know? The other thing is that people bring so much stuff to the virus, you know? Sometimes when people look at me, I don't think that they see me, you know? I think that they see HIV, cancer, this, that, you know, all the pictures. They don't even see me, that I'm flesh, blood, care, you know. And it's just, it's such a powerful teacher, you know. Like this one guy at the co-op in Brattleboro, whenever I go to the co-op to do my grocery shopping, it's really sweet, but he looks at me and it's like, you can see, every time he sees me, the first thing is, he's alive, you know. You know, and... (laughs) You know, and then he comes up to me with his eyes like this and he's looking for the place where I'm going to fall apart, you know? <laughs> and, it's, you know and it's like um, being able to say, hmm, your stuff, you know, you know and trying to, and, and that affects me. I mean, I'm not impervious to either his energy or, or to the situation. And it's just like, you know, on so many levels it's finding strength and doing the dance, you know. It's the same with handicapped people who all we see is the handicapped. Yeah. I have this this um, dream that I'm gonna like do all the work that I have to do, and then they're gonna find a cure. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm gonna take the tablet or get the injection. And then I can like settle back and like all my friends will still be struggling and doing all their, all their work and I can just kind of sit back, you know, and for the next 40 years just sort of take it. Some 
crazier times like in my youth. I unconsciously, through wildness, thrill-seeking, doing really crazy things, was skirting the same edge, was going out there looking for the same guardian meditation or using it in a different way, coming about it in a different way. Because it's being pushing oneself close to the edge. So that uh, you get a sense of immortality. What did you call it? Guardian? Guardian. Guardian. Is that the word referred to in the, in the text? I know that I believe that some people do that, use drugs to do that, mm. which I've done also. I never realized before, you know, when I sat part of the Upandita course, the first one that was here, he had us for a couple of days just sitting in the hall, I don't know if they still do it, but just chanting, uh, death is certain, when is uncertain, death is certain, when is uncertain. And we just would do this like, you know, for sitting after sitting after sitting. And, you know, I feel like I never really understood it, you know, until this experience and, you know, quite recently, how absolutely fundamental that is in terms of of being happy, you know? You know, I mean, it seems so odd, but it's like there's something about the degree of resolution with mortality being the degree to which the happiness is really real, you know? And that's, I'm sure that it's, it, I mean, it's just more and more and more, which I don't know about, you know? But um, th- there's something about just letting go of the, the gridlock around mortal- immortality, you know, this holding on to future and stuff, that actually is really joyful, you know? But it's a funny equation, you know? that we are all about to die is just so so hard to get to if you haven't touched it in some sense if you haven't had an illness or something that got you to the edge um, 
the realization that it's that it can be over this minute, the next minute, even if we're sitting here totally healthy at some point. And it's yeah. that's the major thing to me. I started being grateful, just being amazed in the morning that I wake up. Wow, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> greatest fear to be in the basement of that building in an earthquake, and that's right where I was when wow. the earthquake hit. And for days after, it, it affected everybody so deeply. Um, what it did for me, the, the strongest thing it did for me was give me resolution about what I was doing with my life. That I, I knew I was going to stay in California, continue in the program, and just I just had a lot of resolution about what I was doing. But the fear was, I never experienced fear like that. Hmm. It was incredible. What, what came to me real strong from these times of thinking of being close to death is it what you're talking about, joy. Joy just being with you in the moment. Just joy with whatever is happening in this moment. Um, well, practically, uh, I see a number of different body workers, mm-hmm. you know, uh, chiropractor, uh, neuromuscular therapist, because I think it's, you know, I'm not sure, it's so little is known about this virus that, you know, unless it's absolutely one of the specific manifestations of it, they don't know a lot. and. I have some sort of muscular neurological thing that goes on that could be the virus, but it might not be, and they don't know. And so, you know, all these people do is try and open up the muscles and stretch them, and, you know, sometimes it, it's good, you know, sometimes it lasts a long time, and sometimes, like I saw him yesterday, but today it's really sore again, you know. So I do that, I, I get acupuncture, and, um, I play this edge where I don't want to like put myself in cotton wool and you know protect myself all the time. But on the other hand, like somebody said to me the other day, well, you know that the chairman of American Express got Epstein Barr virus and every every sort of virus. He was really sick, and what he did was he decided he always wanted to climb a mountain, and so he went and climbed Mount Everest, even though he was really sick. And he said, I think that that's what you should do. That you should like. Ignore your pain and just like step forth, you know. And it was a real challenge for me. And I feel like, like, I'm not going to climb Mount Everest. And I feel like I will always 
question any limitation, but I don't feel like I have to hurt myself in order to be free from suffering, you know, and I won't do that. But, you know, I mean, the fear is there, you know, and sometimes the fear has to be engaged. And so it's, it's constantly not overprotecting myself, but not doing violence to myself. And I feel I'm at that edge all the time, all the time. Not only in what I'm doing physically, but in what I'm eating too. Because sometimes, like, I've reached the stage now where I can't stand the sight of tofu or tempeh. It's like, I just can't stand it, you know? And so, you know, I don't eat it, you know? I'm, I'm eating chicken now, and fish, and eggs, you know? And sometimes I just have to have something, you know, I can't stand brown, brown rice, you know? And yet my diet is still very, very yeah, Theravadan, you know? It's like there's nothing elaborate. I don't eat a lot of things, you know? But, you know, it's like playing with fear on every level, physically as well as, you know, emotionally. And I sit a lot, you know? I try and sit three times a day, you know, just so that I can be as present as possible because it's so clear to me, because because of the neurological stuff, which is like the sort of, um, it's like a fire that goes on in the nerves, you know, and um, sometimes it's not bad, you know, and it's also like when it started a year and a half ago, I freaked out. You know, I mean, it was horrible. It was like it was like somebody else's body. I've been putting somebody else's body. You know, it wasn't my own body. Well, now, now, it's like I realize that days go by of it just being okay. You know, like I don't freak out about it so much anymore. But sometimes when it's really intense, what I do is I go and I stand in front of the mirror and I look at myself and I realize that the energetic experience of my body becomes so distorted that I think I'm going to look like the elephant man, you know, in the mirror. I can't believe that it's me, you know, in, in the mirror. So, it's, it's, it's just different, you know. But sitting helps a lot, you know. I feel like, the, the, as far as I understand it, the energy is pretty open in the body, but they're just places where it's absolutely gridlocked. And sitting just moves it more. And so often, um, when I sit, um, although I get very sensitive, and that's why the quiet is really important, I don't sit a lot, but just being protected, it's like the resistance is just sort of fall away. That's how Joseph described it. He said, you don't have to do intensive practice. He said, your life is intensive practice. He said, come to IMS and just use the, the protection here. And then your energy just lets go and what needs to happen happens. And that's kind of how it is, you know. Which makes it great to be on retreat sometimes, but taking that into the world is really hard, you know. Sometimes if somebody comes up to me and their energy is sort of frantic, you know, like I, you know, it's just wild. It's like, I just feel like my whole body goes chaotic, you know. 
And that's really one of the reasons why I'm so grateful to be able to come here, because it truly is the best medicine, far more important than anything that I'm taking, is being able to come here and sit and just see more clearly what's going on and understand it to whatever degree is possible and sort of go out there. Because I sometimes think, should I go to a monastery? You know, I've been a monk before and it's a pull, but I, I don't believe that that's really what I, I need to do. I feel like there's a fullness of living that I am going to have before I die, whenever that is. And that fullness is out there, you know? And, um, and so I'm doing whatever I can to know that. And so coming here, sitting, is what means most to me. And that's why I'm so excited about this book, is that, you know, I mean, personally, it's really neither here nor there that they're going to do this book, but I feel that if we give the title of the book a very provocative title, if anybody comes up with one, let me or wisdom know, so that people who are HIV positive or dealing with life-threatening illness can know that there is the Dharma there, you know? Um, I feel like it's given me choices that, that I feel so privileged you know, so privileged. And so if, if what this book can do is reach people that are dealing with, with these really unworkable situations of life-threatening illness, and this AIDS virus is really um, hard, you know, and without this, or, you know, a real spiritual foundation, I don't know how people do it, you know. So uh, when I was when I gave the talk at CIMC, I've given two talks here. I gave one, and I, I spoke about the diagnosis. And a tape of that talk was circulated around the AIDS community in Boston. And then when I went again, when I was staying here in April, first of May, I went and did another one. And there were a lot of people there. There were about 120 people. And there were lots of PWAs there. There were a lot of people with the virus. What's PWA? A person with AIDS. Oh. And um, I met about four other guys who, um, to some degree, were, were using the Dharma, working with it. And it was really, you know, it was really wonderful. But um, I think, of course, it makes a difference if you knew the Dharma before the diagnosis, you know. It's like, um, I, I worked with one man who found the Dharma after the diagnosis and it was too much, he, you know, he couldn't contain it, you know. And he died um, very excited, but um, it was just too overwhelming, you know. I want you to know that I could stay here all afternoon and evening, <laughs> and I do know that, uh, you know, whenever it's time we should close, and I'm happy to stay on.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.